my radiator walks over to me to the side of the bed and says, it was the best of times. It was oh my God. <laughs> Welcome back to the Q Files. I am Lori Gum, the co-host who produces this show, along with my pal and partner in adventure, Shane McClelland. I didn't get to accompany all of my ghost hunter friends on their trip last fall to the haunted Hinsdale house, and I regret that, because in listening to all the recordings of their investigation, I have heard rumblings of an idea of which I have had a notion about for years, and it is this. There is possibly an energy, an inner life force in inanimate objects, and maybe even a form of consciousness very different from that which is experienced by humans. And we as beings might actually be able to connect powerfully with that force if the right conditions and proper mindset occur. But it was one statement that Shane made on the initial episode of this investigation that sent my mind reeling. And I was dying to ask him about it. Shane and I purposely had not gotten together to discuss the investigation at length as we wanted to save that conversation to be recorded for this show. We didn't want to talk it all out before we got to you. So I invited Shane to my house for dinner to do just that. This episode is our first real conversation about the haunted Hinsdale house. Oh, and oh yeah, oh yeah, we'll also talk about my friend, the radiator. All right. All right. So we're talking about the Hinsdale House. I'm sorry I wasn't there with you all, but your visit has created lots of thoughts in my mind. <laughs> and my very first question that I've been dying to ask you, and I haven't asked you this before, oh God, because I wanted to get it on tape, <laughs> is I'm very fascinated by your comment that you said, I told you the house doesn't want us here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's fascinating. Thinking of the house itself. Um, so tell me, why why didn't you think the house wanted you there? Yeah. So it was it was hard to describe, um, or it is hard to describe. The so I, I kept having like weird dreams leading up to this investigation, and then. I eventually, like, they weren't connected to the house or the trip or anything. It was just, like, like nightmares, basically, leading up to it. And then I started getting this, just this, like, anxiety really? feeling of going on this trip. And, like, it's not even the longest, like, trip I've taken. And really? I wasn't driving back at 4 o'clock in the morning by myself, which I've done plenty Many of times. times. Yeah. Um, so I, I couldn't figure out, like, why I was having this, this anxiety. And then... Um, the morning that I was supposed to go, I had planned to meet my parents, and they end up being like two hours late. They're like, so I'm behind schedule, and then I get a call from Michelle and Susan, and their dog had died. Right, I know. And it was just like this, we're not supposed to go. And what was weird is I'm having this, like this moment of clarity when I'm talking to Michelle, and she was like, I don't, she's like, we're, we're going to go. We're just going to be behind schedule. We had talked about not going, but I think we're going to go. And it was just like this moment of the house doesn't want us to go. That's like, just that's, what came into your mind. Yeah, like that's what, that is what's happening. So interesting though, not the entities, not any of right. the things that have right. haunted that house, 
We'll talk about the semantics of the word haunted house <laughs> later. But so it wasn't that you you had a feeling that it was the actual house that didn't want you all to come. Right, which I'm assuming we're going to talk about in a minute. But um, for whatever reason, it wasn't that you know, the, the demon that was in Hinsdale is trying to keep us out. Um, it was very much that, like, the house doesn't want us to come. And I don't know where that thought came from or where those feelings came from, but that was, that was like, what I was, I was going with. And there, there were so many conversations in the 24 hours before that, well, actually, more like 36 hours before that trip, um, well, the investigation, where it was like, everyone kind of had this same sense of basic wow. unease yeah. with this investigation. And, and it's with not, the house in particular. Yeah. yeah. And it, it's not that we're, you know, inexperienced or had just never done this or whatever. And we, you know, every, every place has its, its demon, its negative entity and all of these things. So it wasn't something like that where we're super concerned about it. Um, it's just, uh, I don't know. Well, you know, you saying that, and, and we've had, We've had plenty of conversations on the back porch to talk about things like this, but one of the things that's always fascinated me has been this sort of notion of um, inanimate objects having a life. Right. And I think I was first um, drawn to that. Um, As you know, I studied Judaism for a long time. The Jewish mystics, in particular, in the Zohar and, and Kabbalistic texts, uh, the idea is that you know there is a divine spark in every atom in the universe, and um, although in their philosophy these divine sparks are encased in husks, and our attention to these divine sparks will release the husks, and we will raise that spark to heaven. That's our goal in life. But the idea that there was a divine spark in inanimate objects. And, you know, we've gone to so many places where, um, you know, I I think of Collingwood. Collingwood, to me, had a very, um, very real personality, much more so than other places. And I started to think about, and I have for a long time, this issue of, do is there any reality to the fact that maybe inanimate objects at least possess an energy that we can feel right essentially now there's some very funny things about this you know it kind of goes back okay. to Murphy law Murphy's yeah yeah, like yeah. That. but in uh, I think it's 1958 um, a guy named Paul Jennings uh, wrote a letter in the Spectator, New York Spectator, called a report on resistentialism. He coined the phrase okay. resistentialism, and it was basically um, that inanimate objects had a seemingly spiteful behavior towards humans. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So it was. It was jocular. It was. Yeah. You know this this idea that inanimate objects are out to get us. It was funny. And even the name uh, resistentialism he developed because res is resistance, existentialism. It was a spoof on 
Sartre and existentialism. Yeah. But the theories had some legs over the years. Is that you know, in animate, whether it's Lost Keys, we all know the the battle with inanimate objects. Absolutely, yeah. And so why it's funny and um, we think about it. I've had two particular um, uh, resistentialist. What brought me to actually was my evil toaster. <laughs> I was going to say your, your my toaster. Evil toaster. And notwithstanding the great 90s video <laughs> of the woman with the evil toaster, but I had an evil toaster. The toaster would either cook it, my toast too much when I didn't want it or not enough. It was always doing the opposite. Now, I'm, I'm sure it was sort of some thermostat thing. Yeah. But when it did this, my iPod would not work too, so I was convinced that they were in cahoots together. <laughs> and eventually, after, you know, literally a, a dinner, a, a brunch for people, and all my toast was burnt, I took that toaster out and I tore it out. I took a screwdriver and tore out <laughs> the innards of that freaking so toaster. You killed it. I killed it and I buried it. And I buried the coils in a different place than the rest of it so it couldn't come back together. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? My iPod never had another problem. <laughs> never had another problem. So, I mean... Again, as, as funny as it is, to a certain extent, I, I really felt this personality of an inanimate object. And um, I'll give one other instance is that... Uh, and I know, and I'm going to explain in a second why I know I'm not weird about this. <laughs> I, a couple of years ago, I went to Giant Eagle, and it was summer, and they have all these great plants on a little deck. Yeah. So it was like, you know, 60 plants. Well, little by little, I'd go every day, and all these plants got bought. And finally, finally, there was one little teeny tiny plant Just alone. By itself. By itself, sitting there. And I'm about the next day was still sitting there and I went back the next day and it was still sitting there and you know what I bought that plant because I really had a, a, a sense of who wants to be the last plant yeah. dying and so there was absolutely a sense of me giving to it and, and you know a plant is living but it's essentially an yeah. inanimate yeah. object um, giving it, it a personality and empathy towards it and what I've learned since then is there's a thing called uh, synesthesia. Have yeah, you ever heard yeah, that? Okay. Yeah. Where you might smell colors mm -hmm. or hear colors, hear colors yeah. or smell a taste or whatever. Yeah. Well, within that is considered a disorder. Mm -hmm. Within that is called another disorder that is called personification. And it's specifically about people over identifying with inanimate objects. For example, a woman, I just read an interview with her recently, whenever she throws a pen away, she puts the cap on because she doesn't want the pen to be alone in the trash can. Now, I'm going to tell you something. If you go on the internet, the internet is exploding with personification, with synesthesia. Yeah. There are so many people that identify with inanimate objects. It's like a thing on the internet. Now... There's some theories. Number one, it starts with um, when we're there's animism when we're kids. We we identify with our right. toys. Yeah. When we're, yeah, well, yeah. And watch Toy Story for God's sake. We identify with that, and then we don't outgrow it. But what's interesting to me is that it's automatically called a disorder. What if these people actually have another sense within yeah. this sort of synesthesia idea? What if they're actually 
understanding on another level that inanimate objects, why they may, we, I know we anthropomorphize them with human emotion, but at the same time, maybe inanimate objects do exude a force um, and energy, and these people are picking up on them. And I will say to you right now, to bring this back to what we're talking about, what more glorious inanimate object is there than a house? No, absolutely. And I, but I think that goes, I mean, outside of, like certain specific individual objects that may not have a lot attached to them energy-wise. I think there's something to be said about the, the like conveyance of maybe it's emotional energy or something. Um, you know, like you, you might have your favorite wine glass and maybe that, you know, it maybe it triggers something in you that you interp interpret when you hold that glass or drink from that glass. Why it's called personification, right. no doubt. Yeah. Right, but then, but like uh, as a home, um, you know, to relate it back to more, I guess, kind of like fringe theories, there's like the stone tape theory that like limestone can absorb the mm, stuff that happens near it and play it back and play there it back go. and play it back. Why can't a home do that? Think of all like the soft absorbent materials and just like even like what a home is made out of. Is, well, I'm thinking of this home like, particularly. This is a home that was built in 1949, my house. And if you look around, look at the wood. Yeah. You know, this isn't, and I think these kind of houses that were built with wood that is a soft sort of organic, yeah. and let's remember too, once living. this wood was once living and is a tree. Why would they not necessarily absorb that energy, particularly more so than drywall or, right. or I think the less processed the substrate is that builds the house is yeah. more susceptible to that. I think that's why you find more energy in older houses. It's not right. even necessarily because they have more history. It's because they're built more of organic living yeah. materials. So, yeah. you know, it goes back to that thought. Here's what I'm fascinated about. When you talk about haunted houses, and you and I know, when we always go ghost hunt, we're going to look into entities. We've never thought about actually questioning the venue itself. Right. And that, I think... For me, at least for the first time, I think that changed with this investigation. And it changed with me, again, having this sort of interest in inanimate objects anyway over right. a long period of time. But hearing you say that one line, oh, I told you the house didn't want me here. It, there was like a little light bulb that went off in my head and I thought, he's right. He's right. That house doesn't want you here. It's not the cryptids. It's not the faces. It's right. not all those things. That house... And you know what? Maybe that house just wants to be alone. Maybe it right. just doesn't want right. a bunch of people trouncing through. It could be something so not demonic, like, I like silence in my house. Don't parade right. through my house and then demand that I talk to you. What do you think you're doing? No, and that's that's exactly, I guess the, the what eventually led me to believe that was um, just throughout the course of our investigation where essentially nothing is, is happening but also um if you pick apart or i guess maybe not pick apart but listen closely to what the host was telling us you know even she's not the things that she's describing aren't necessarily indicative of a haunting they're in indicative of some kind of thought process that led yeah. to something happening and really after i had you know on this like six hour drive home when i was thinking about it there was this moment where I went, you know, we were standing at the fire talking about someone showing up. Yes, yes. And no joke, someone shows up. 
So maybe, maybe, and you mentioned this before, maybe this house is not just a house, but it is a portal for actualization of well, fear. Like, is there such a thing as a place that says, you know, you actualize this, this is going to happen. And maybe why so many fearful things have happened in that house is it some it's some kind of a, and I hate to use the word portal because that yeah, sounds yeah. so otherworldly, but a door to right. actualize your fear. So let's take the dandies. This is the family that lived there. We all have these primordial visions of monsters and things such as cryptids and um, things moving when we don't know why. What if it's just there are these spaces that actualize yeah. their that, fears? That's, I, I, and I, I think either it, it's a product of the building itself, the product of the land, the product of all of it And the combined. land, we'll talk about that in a minute too, um, yeah. But there, there is something, and I, I think either something about that piece of property has its own consciousness or it is some like you said like portal doorway there is something unique about what has been combined there to create the ability to manifest yeah. different things and in 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 why I, th I think that is is that between you know us talking about how weird and uncomfortable and scary that would be and it happening was no more than 10 minutes and the thing is you're so alone out there. Yeah, you're so yeah. secluded. So if you live out there all the time, and let's say your fear, right? Maybe it's that is is of a ghost being mm -hmm. in the house, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, maybe your fear is of an intruder in the house, whatever it is. Well, now it starts happening. Yeah. There's nothing to it. You know, they're, they're, the, the Dandy family is afraid of intruders, so they see people looking in the windows. Right, right. They go outside to get them. Well, there's, there's still people. The manifestation now is now still there. Now we're afraid that somebody's inside. Right. I'm giving myself goosebumps. I just want to say that. Goosebumps, too. You know, can you imagine? Just imagine. Just imagine if this was proven. What an, right. amuse, what an amusement park. <laughs> your, your biggest fear comes to life. Oh my God! Not not a revolutionary idea, but it can actually happen. It can actually happen, right? And you know, I don't. And and the, this is what I find kind of so profound with this is is again, as many ghost hunts as, as we have done, we've never thought about houses like this. This this trip, no. we've we've never thought about houses. And so let's just jump here very quickly to may not even be the house, it may be the land. Much more happened on the land than ever happened in that house. In the house. Just because of the right. history of land. It's right. been here forever. Um, what happened on that land? And, you know, 99.9% .9 of the history of that land is not going to be documented. Correct. As to where it happened. So, you know, if this kind of experience, and I think the question is, you know, and I'm not talking about a human kind of consciousness. I'm talking more of a, maybe a Buddhist kind of consciousness where can a house built of organic materials or can land develop some sort of its own consciousness that is, again, not human consciousness, so we can't look at it the same way, but some kind of, we go back to the Jewish mystics, 
some kind of divine spark. And maybe those divine sparks combine to create a version of consciousness yeah. that only a few of us and only sometimes we get a glimpse of. Right. So I think that we, ha we have proof of that you know, across philosophies and religions um, of nature being essentially aware, right? Mm -hmm. First off, like, kind of, we have the concept of mother nature mm -hmm. being aware. Um, or yeah, then like, that's completely anthropomorphized. Right. That's a great point, right. mother nature. That's a great point. But even, and probably, I guess, most people listening to this are more aware of, like, Christian ideas, right? Western, yeah. What, Western, Western thoughts. Yeah. But we have the, the burning bush, yeah. right? This bush that is capable of conveying a message that you know in, in the Bible we we say that was that was God, yeah. but that is again an object in nature taking on consciousness uh, and being able to interact with you. And I, I and let's think back too. It was the apple tree you know, was, at the very beginning. Right. Now there was a serpent, of course, but it was the apple but I mean, tree. Think, even the serpent is a, just a, nature. It was just it was a tree that actually a tree that actually encompassed good, right. you know, knowledge and, knowledge. and good and evil. Yeah. Um, that an inanimate object would actually possess all that. It, were, it was humans that were more subservient to that tree. Correct. So, which leads me to this, which leads me to this, and I think about this all the time. All of Western religion and Western civilization is built basically on supernatural events in the yeah. Bible. All of it, from the apple tree to the burning bush, through on, through the gospel. Why do people have such a problem with paranormal activity <laughs> when our entire, truly, Western civilization is built on supernatural events? No well, one has a I, problem with an angel visiting, but I'll tell you something. If a little green alien comes in, I might be a little afraid, okay, initially. Right. But if a big freaking woman comes in with wings, I mean... That's supposed to be comforting? That's supposed to be comforting. I mean, there was never <laughs> any notion of fear. Right. Well, I think there is. Maybe in, in more of the prophets, there's some fear when they initially see... There's, there's fear Like the Markovah and things like that. But interesting enough is exactly what you said. In the Old Testament particularly... Um, it's meant to comfort. So why don't we find comfort in houses that have personality, right. land that has personality, entities that might be in our house? Why has that become so fearful when that is what we, those are the stories I was raised on. Right. It's like Disney films now, for God's sake. I mean, it's, it's yeah. the things that comfort us, but somehow we find that was so believable and the paranormal experience is, is not, not, in general, believable. And, and, and I do have a theory about that. I think, actually, let's take up until literally 50 years ago, maybe, we were all, whether you were in a religious family or not, you knew the stories of the Bible. Um, and even if you were secular, right. him, yeah. you, knew the, you knew those stories. And I think you take 100, 150, 200, 300 years ago, people were so familiar with the, with the Old Testament that the paranormal right. didn't scare them because they were so in line with that 
those literary readings and religious readings. Right. There's a foundation it made of sense. knowledge. And now it's sort of the secularization and, you know, not everyone now knows the story of the Old Testament, right. the stories. Um, there's been a disconnect. And I'm not saying, it's not a judgment about any of those times, but I think a comfort with the paranormal used to exist because of, you know, early Christianity yeah. um, or early Judaism that does not exist anymore. And I think that's really because of secularization of, but here, and it's ironic because it was always the churches against, you know, demons and all those kind right, of things. But right. that, that wasn't the real story. People read these stories in their homes right. all of the time. Right. And they celebrated them. And, you know, you take something, you know, as simple as Hanukkah and the lights stay on. For, it, it's, a, it's a paranormal event. Correct, yeah. And it's comforting. And, and we celebrate. Listen, we celebrate Hanukkah. We celebrate Christmas, which is the biggest paranormal event ever. A child born of a virgin mother with a star and wise men? Wise men. I don't know. Wise I mean, men? That sounds like somebody's last name. The wise men. You know, they came as a family. The wise men. The wise men. The wise men. Um, I mean, oh, Easter, Easter is a pretty big paranormal I event. I mean, come on. <laughs> and we have a problem with ghosts? Right. We got zombie Jesus out here and no one bats an eye. It fascinates me. The disconnect between the <laughs> belief and the celebration right. and the absolute rejection of the knowledge of supernatural in academia, in the religious world, in every work, whatever. It's, the disconnect stuns me. Right. And I, I don't know how to, you know, it, it, well, I don't know how to explain it better or get people to see that, you know, everyone kind of believes this or everyone is familiar with these concepts yeah. but applying them outside of a story that is thousands of years old is weird or right. not normal or you know you're crazy that doesn't happen and it's like but you fundamentally but you believe. go to church on sunday yeah. and you celebrate all of these paranormal right. events and and you celebrate it in a way that is joyous and comforting and attributing it to the um, joy of life yeah. and living and how important that is. The, the disconnect I've thought about for a long time is <laughs> absolutely stunning to me. No, I mean, it, it is. It's... I'm going to be as afraid, like I said, I'm going to be afraid of human being with those big ass wings on coming through the door <laughs> that I am a little green guy. Yeah. But I mean, maybe all that, all of that is connected, possibly connected. Well, you know what? There's the rub. It is. Somehow that's all connected. And you take the notion of, um, you know, miracles and all that. Right. I mean, miracles, nothing less than a paranormal event. And I, I loved, I heard years ago in, in, in the Course of Miracles, actually. I know, I know. But it's an interesting <laughs> set of books. Um, is that, you know... A miracle is nothing less than time compressed. And it's just compressing time. And that's a whole Buddhist belief. And a religion, you know, it, it goes back to even our Eastern religions. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, I find it interesting, too, because even Buddhism, um, while there's not necessarily, you know, a specific attachment to inanimate objects, you know, the, the process of acquiring mindfulness and presence is paying attention to inanimate objects. Right, right. Thich Nhat Hanh, to do the dishes, 
feel the dishes, know the dishes, look at how they were created, look at the materials they were yeah. created from. If, if that isn't connection with an inanimate object and feeling the soul of an inanimate object. And so I think, I really do, there's a part of me that thinks on the horizon there's, there's kind of a, a revolution awaiting that there's a whole other bit of existence beyond our own perception. But I do believe it takes another state of mind to access and appreciate and connect with that other level. And um, I think you just got a little glimpse of that at the Hensdale oh, no. House. Absolutely. I, I think they're in, you know, like kind of the, the, the paranormal phenomenon. There has to be some kind of psychological um, component to it. A subjective psychological right. component, yeah. But I think when you're at Hinsdale, you know, you, ha you have a house that was made from, I don't understand how it wouldn't have been, but from the trees that were on the land where the house is. So they built the, the, that, the house, house from the... I mean, why, why wouldn't they have? Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, that well, was 18, sense, yeah. whatever it was, like 20 or 1830 or something. You know, and I mean, even as the house is now, there's basically a forest behind it. Yes. You know, a, wood, a wooded area that is... Has its own legends. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know... Folklore. The, the house is a product of the land that it sits on. Even the trees that it was right. built with. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. And, you know, so if you take the idea of the, these things having this energy or this consciousness or whatever, and then you combine it with the psychological aspect of paranormal phenomena, then you've created just kind of this whatever is you extra unique about this, this parcel of land, the ability to kind of manifest your fears. And what really, like, set me down that path outside of the, 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 the intruders that we experienced was as I like kind of like replayed it back, the 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 host talks about how the Slender Man was there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She and does. The Slender Man is fake. Like it's a story that was created online. Um, it's not a a unique phenomena. Like maybe So it didn't you know, happen really in, in, initially. Correct. Or, it's, a, it's a story. It's, right. it's lore. It's, it's lore. I don't even know if it qualifies as lore. It's like it's like if I would were to sit here and type up a story. It's it was it's it was like a short story about the Slender Man. Now I, I you know the Slender Man has like all this lore that build up around the story, right? But she saw him. But she saw him. And she he wasn't real. Right. Now that doesn't mean maybe the Slender Man can exist, but if it does exist, then that's it's like a psychological aspect of the paranormal. It's a, it's or a manifested out of this imagination in a portal that would allow you to right. actualize. Here's the interesting thing that you've just brought into this. It's not an actualization necessarily of what is real, but of your imagination. How freaking terrifying is that? Right. Do I want all of the... All of your fears. My fears, even my imagined fears right. to be realized in, in a place? I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking not. I'm thinking not. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I... I, the, the, I have enough problems the way it is. I mean, right, you know, I, know. I, don't, I, don't, I don't need to go need somewhere. To, exactly. A roller coaster will do just fine. <laughs> that's, that's it. But I think of like, you know, just let's just imagine that it was discovered that this place was this portal for the actualization of your real or imagined fears or your probable fears or ones that are impossible fears becomes an amusement park. 
Absolutely. Who wouldn't go there? But I'm telling you what, after about six months, people are going to so, be, be so frightened when they go. Nobody will they'll shutter those doors and shut it down. And, but, you know, for six months, it would be the hottest ticket in the land. And, you know, and that's <laughs> another thing I've thought about. You know, the com- com- commodifying of ghost hunting and houses oh, for sure. like this and... Um, maybe the resentment from both houses and entities of this kind of you're coming here for an amusement park, you're coming here for a roller coaster. And, and that's one of the things I do, not to pat ourselves on the back, but that's one of the things I, I think we do well and, and we need to continue to do is uh, we try to research, we try to understand. We aren't just going there to be scared. As a matter of fact, we're usually never scared because now we understand the entities and we can approach them with empathy. And maybe that's another kind of synesthesia where you're approaching a ghost inanimate object with personification. But we do, and we do our research, and we do our work. And um, it it sort of uh, um, allows us to not just treat it as an amusement park. We treat it as a true connection and, and you know, um, uh, uh, um, creating more history and understanding more history. And I, yeah. I love that. So here's what I think. I think we need to start doing three things. Okay. <laughs> Get ready. Take I notes. I know you'll agree with all of them. <laughs> um, number one, I think we should really... Um, intentionally go do a couple um, ghost hunting investigations where we investigate the venue. We leave the entities Mm -hmm. out, we appeal to the venues. The other thing I think, and this just came to me while we were talking, okay, I, I will be labeled a tree hugger, it's fine. Think about the trees on that land. Connecting somehow with these yeah. monster I've got a tree back here in my little linden, you know, yeah. urban yeah. backyard. That tree's got to be 150 years old. It's massive. Mm-hmm. What that tree has seen, what and, and it's a and it's not just an inanimate thing. It is a living thing. Yeah. Okay. And the other thing you and I have talked about at length is connecting with animals. Absolutely. And the spirits of animals. And as you and I talk, we're not, it's great to connect with the, the dead family dog. I had four or five I'd love to talk to again. Right. <laughs> but you know what? We need to go to a slaughterhouse. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And let's expand this notion. I think we think of these things as an animate object, so more or less, although they're living. Um, but yeah, I think that's, it's exploring the idea of consciousness and like on those different what, le- yes, what different yeah. levels and what yeah. remains and you know where does it go or where does it come from even right and you saw that a little bit with the tree that you went out with the with the yeah so 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 explain the difference to me very quickly I think you saw this tree and there's a hanging tree there also okay with the, so the, with the woman who died because she was pregnant yeah, was hung I guess. So once, so the, the lore is that there, there's a hanging tree that is since fallen over. Um, I mean, it would have been probably, Did you know specifically where it was or? Yeah, it was, it was, it would have been at the, the, the further like front edge of the property. Okay. Cause you have to remember that this, 
the road to get to the house is really, and, and I can't think of the name of the road, it's like McMahon Road or something. It should just be called Hinsdale House Road. <laughs> Because it's the only place it I goes. I think you just send a letter. To <laughs> I, I'm going to write a strongly worded letter. Change the name of this this, this uh, freaking road. Um, but you know what? If you've seen the sign that said Hensdale House Road, you'd have turned down it. Exactly. <laughs> right? Unfortunately, it is like this. Well, I, I don't even know how big that is. Like four inches by eight inches. It's a tiny little sign. Anyway, um, so it, it you know it fell over in like like 2013 or something. But this woman was allegedly hang there. And, you know, it was because... In what year, do you think? I don't remember the year. Are we um, talking 1800s or early 1900s? Yeah, it was, it was like 1800s. But, see, the, the, the problem with this is that her husband was, like, off fighting a war, and she ended up pregnant, so she got hung because she was, she was you know, some harlot that, you know, was out here... While he was off fighting yeah, a war. And, yeah, and, you know, all of this, all this... So it had gender, uh, you know... Th- these underlying, like concepts of like the gender equality and and misogyny and and the thing is there's no evidence of this um even this little boy that allegedly died on the property they the most they can find is this kid who died a few miles away actually away yeah um you know and there's, there's just this lore that ends up getting attached to and built up around this place but was this lore built up around this place before the dandies got there see i don't i don't know and i i don't think I don't know. Or did this come after the dandies had such a problem? So when the dandies were there, they had they they, they you know they contacted Father Alphonsus and he um, they they did some research. They they ran an ad in the paper asking if anyone knew about the property, like all of this wow. stuff. And I think maybe this is where like some of that lore oh, starts dude. coming in. Gotcha. You know, so and so died here. Well, maybe it wasn't here, but it's, it, you know, 100 years ago, it was a house a mile down the road. But there used to only be two houses. Sorry, I don't remember which one. But and like, I heard at some point that there was a, a, co- a house there that was a stagecoach. Stage coach. Something that seven people had been murdered but or something. But the stagecoach never went uh-huh. near way. the house. Yeah. yeah, And really, even when you're there now, why the hell would the stagecoach be over here at this house? There wasn't even a sign to the road. Right. Why would like, even miss <laughs> It's all by its lonesome. So this is an interesting thing. So more than likely is the dandy experience and the well-publicized experience of the dandy family actually created the folklore. It created the folklore, but not only that. Or the gathering of the folklore. It created the haunting. Yeah. So whatever was going on with the dandy family, I believe, eventually like led to the manifestation of their fears right and that starts a, tr- a chain reaction of lore that and builds up so now when you go you're looking for a demon yeah you're looking for a growl yeah. you want a chair thrown at you yeah. yeah yeah it's an amusement park it's an amusement park yeah wow and all because someone was entombed enough psychologically to help trigger with the house yeah. and the land and everything aligned. And there's something there that it may very well be a particular person or family with a particular mindset that steps into this particular house. Amityville, the same way. Right. Um, I think the, the Hinsdale and Amityville are unique in that it seems to be the house is haunting the inhabitants more so right. than entities. Um, 
and which brings us back to uh, Father Alphonsus, um, who investigated both. And one of the things was interesting I read in the last couple of days about something he had read, uh, something he had said, yeah. is that um, he did not perform an exorcism at Hinsdale because only people could have exorcisms. He did a cleansing. Right. Houses can have cleansing. Only people can have exorcisms. So he right. did a cleansing. So it was interesting that he even, in his own mind, differentiated between an entity, an exorcism, and a cleansing in a house. He couldn't exorcise a house. Right. Um, which is kind of a, just, yeah. again, it's separating the house from the entities, which is what we're talking about. No, it's, it's exactly what we're talking about. And so, I mean, there's like, first of all, there's like different levels of um, like exorcism to begin with, right? Which is actually why the church wants you to contact them. Okay, to do the actual like solemn exorcism rites requires like all of this approval. Everything prior to that doesn't. Okay, which is part of why I believe that when Father Alphonsus went there, he was like, it's not a person. That's the issue. I'm never going to get this approved. So, you know, he can't sit here and write down exactly what he did because it's going to cause him problems. Of course. With whatever he's doing. But he's readily admitting something's wrong here. You know what I mean? So he's using, he, you know, he's using the skills. And, you know, the Dandy family, I, I believe, I could be wrong, um, refers to it as an exorcism in, in the book. Um, they do. And I think he was, when he, when he was talking, he was clarifying he, that this he, is not exactly. this is cleansing. Yeah. But I, I think there's, like, well, layers says, of uh, maybe in the why. Book, the daughter's book, she says, I think what led her to believe it was an exorcism he used some of the language from the traditional right. Latin right. exorcism. The the rites. He he, yeah. he he used that, but he meant that in a cleansing way with the house, not necessarily right. an exorcism of them or an entity or anything else. Right. Yeah. No. And and I I I, I guess my my point in bringing that up was is it becomes difficult to figure out what happened, what people remember happening, what was recorded as happening, and what was allowed to be recorded as happening. And I think even when you parse all of that together, one, it's, it's evident that an expert thought something was going on. Someone who studied this, lived for this, did multiple versions of this. And this family who, you know, had this horrific experience either in the house, on, well, in the house, on the property. There, there is something unique there. And I, I think it becomes... You know, you, you know, the cleansing didn't take. The, the deliverance of the, the house, the property, didn't yeah. take. Um, and maybe that makes it just either more unique or something that is... That, w- that would require more than one intervention or yeah. something. I mean, like... The, you or know, a different mind level. Or yeah, a different approach. To, to seal up approach. or level out whatever is going on there and that's and i guess that, that goes back to like the the nature aspect of it this this giving tree and i don't know that anyone can tell us why that's there or you know is it some kind of yin and yang well, situation counter, counter response like, to the sense of evil that right. was there yeah and the, you know i find that very heartening that that somehow sprung up too yeah, you know, just, that, that's that's makes perfect sense but you know what's dawning on me as we talk about all this? It just has dawned to me while we're talking about all this. There are three films that have defined how we as a society 
look at paranormal activity. So, the last <laughs> 2,000 years had the Old Testament, uh -huh. pretty much. New Testament too, but Old Testament. You know what we have now? The Exorcist, <laughs> Amityville Horror, yeah. and Poltergeist. That is our new Old Testament. Yeah. For how we as a society, and maybe even um, close encounters with the UFO thing, mm -hmm. that is the kind of holy grail of our consciousness that has been absolutely sculpted out of cinema. Yeah. Not and a it, literary, tra not it, a literary, literary tradition, but a cinematic tradition. And it's all fear-based. That's what it is. And I will tell you something, <clears throat> and I'm a fan, don't get me wrong. The impact that The Exorcist made on this society, we'll have to have a separate podcast about right? that. <laughs> the, 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 the impact that The Exorcist made on this society. Um, it actually rejuvenated all of these issues. People hadn't thought about this right. for a very long time. They were still back in the old time, the Old Testament thing. Yeah. That hit America like a smack in the face with a concrete block. Then everybody thought they were possessed. Then everybody thought their houses were possessed. Um, and the very notion of exorcism, when we talk about it, the sort of zeitgeist social concept of that is the film, The Exorcist. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. When we think of exorcism, we think of Reagan and the pea soup. I mean, we do. <laughs> that's what we think about. And that's another profound story. I mean, I think... Um, Father Alphonse was involved in that also. He investigated that. Investigated so it, yeah. The, um, what, 1948 Robbie, his name was Robbie, yeah. that the, the, in Georgetown that the story is based on. We, we should have a separate podcast at some point about that film and <laughs> that event. Right. Because I think it redefined the entirety of society's view towards the paranormal. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It really did. And that was really based on the individual. It was not the house. It was the individual. And, um, uh, you know, and it, it's funny. Um, I, I'm sure we'll talk about this in our uh, December um, haunted Christmas episode. But I go back to Dickens so often. Yeah. You know, that idea of that sort of personal haunting and right. um, kind of within the house. And I'll tell you, can I tell you a funny story about that? Sure. <laughs> I, I realized that I had an allergy to Benadryl. Um, this is way back oh in like 1990. You've definitely told me this before, yeah. Um, so it was late December in Brooklyn. I'm laying in my bed. I had this old 1800s bed with this mattress and feather comforter, and it was wonderful. And I'm snuggled up in my bed. But I had a bad cold, so I took Benadryl. And so um, I uh, was reading A Christmas Carol, which is one of my favorite books. I had a, you know, public reading a couple years ago. I love this book. Um, it is the most ghostly of books yeah. and it deals with past, present, and future. It's just golden. It's just golden. And talk about something that is another literary um, masterpiece that has affected our consciousness about ghosts. Right. But yeah. so I'm reading this, and in, in New York, I had all my house was 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 these big old radiators, and when they heated up, they'd knock and they'd bang. So I was reading a Christmas Carol, and this is no joke. My radiator walked over to me, just like in what is it? 
bed broomstick that um, Disney bed film. knobs and broomsticks. Little, little feet. My radiator walks over to me to the side of the bed and says, "It was the best of times." It was oh my god! Times. Okay, <laughs> it's the wrong book. Right, but still. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I mean, there's not often in your life that you have visual hallucinations yeah. and you actually see that. I mean, uh, you want to talk about a ghost story. I mean, I, I was on the phone with my, I'm like, get over here. The freaking radiator's <laughs> chasing you. It's like Ellen Burstyn in Requiem right. for a, you know, yeah. a, a dream that the refrigerator was chasing you around. But it, it was, it, it was really, and again, maybe that's part of my reason with the fascination of, of resistentialism and inanimate objects. I mean, I know it was a, you know, psychochemical induced hallucination. Right. But when you see a radiator walk over to you and talk to you, your life changes. <laughs> <laughs> There's always a part of me at Christmas, like, you know, Christmas Eve, I'm kind of like, I'm always suspect of the oven. <laughs> Or the refrigerator oh or the lamp. Like, there's always a part of me just kind of like, can everybody just chill? It'll be okay. <laughs> um, and then that goes back to resistentialism. But this, you know, you know, um, this idea that that you know, we we there are inanimate objects and and uh, uh, we we do have a relationship with them. And it's not a little bit of a jump to ghosts and all of those. Absolutely, sort of things. yeah. So, um, yeah, I think maybe this has really given us an opportunity to, Invest, as we say, we deliberately most investigate ghost hunting rules already with queer ghost hunters and right. everything else. Um, <laughs> let's look to deliberately investigate in just a, a different way, a different method. Um, yes, less entity focused, less human centered. Yeah. Uh, pork chop likes it. Mm-hmm. Um, let's. <laughs> Poor child. She has to make herself. I know. She had to. She needs time. her credit. Yes. Um, so that's kind of exciting. And it's Christmas time, and we're going on a Halloween haunting I know. here soon. Right. Um, so, wow. <laughs> wow. And I'd like to revisit Hinsdale House with you again. And um, No, I, I think redoing Hinsdale, but going into it with the idea. Like, could you. Okay. So, doing. I think. On that note, one of the more interesting things of that happens during the investigation, because literally nothing else happened, was that when we were doing the Ouija board, we start getting interaction yes, did. around us. And I think it's this moment of we're, fo we're focused on receiving interaction because we're watching the plan chat. So you, like, like you're expecting movement and what are we getting? Movement around, around us. you, but not in the planchette. Right. So to go there to do the investigation with that in mind, right? I want to hear footsteps. Do you hear footsteps? You know, I want to see, you know, the kitchen light turn on by itself. Does it turn on by or, itself? You know, it's or, just like... Or, what if we go in, not to get all Buddhist about it, <laughs> But what we go? What if we go in with a mindful well, no, I'm state just, of mind where it's, it's actually you aren't har. Here's the thing: of mindfulness, you aren't harboring a thought in your mind. If we could train ourselves enough to walk in there, 
let's just let's just think. Let's just think about a Buddhist monk going into Hinsdale. Okay, the idea ideally is you know, one of my favorite philosophers have the radical notion of not harboring any thoughts. To go into Hinsdale without a thought, without a fear, without anything. Would nothing happen? I would, I would think nothing would happen. Or does it give this thing the freedom to go beyond all your perceived own fears, to take the, sub, the subjectiveness out of it and actually experience the thing itself as opposed to experiencing our own psychological distress? Yeah, no, I, I... We need to take a Buddhist monk with us to Hinsdale. <laughs> That's what's going to happen. I mean, I, I just think there there is... A monk, a rabbi, and a Christian right. walk in the Hinsdale house. <laughs> Nothing happens. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I just think that there is something unique about whatever is going on there, and I, I think it involves um, more psych, like more of a psychological interaction... I agree. ...than... I agree. A lot of other places I've been, or maybe maybe it's not. Maybe it's all the same, and I just haven't noticed it before. But I think that's a new challenge, and I think that's a new sort of door that has opened up for us in discussing our. You know, you and I have spent a lot of time developing and discussing our ghost hunter philosophy and process. We yeah. take this very seriously. Um, maybe this is a door open to say, you know what? We've never really paid attention. We paid attention to our tools. We paid attention to our what we say. We paid attention to the people. What yeah. if we start paying attention to our own minds? And Absolutely, and I mean, and I think that's we. So we do do that, right? We we always start off with what is tantamount to a ritual um, when we do our our, our circle and mm -hmm. our introduction and essentially our greeting. And the thing is, we we do it. We do it to the building and the entities that reside there. Mm -hmm. Like, that's what we do. We say that. Yeah, we do. We do. And For I circle mean, of light, yeah. Yeah, and even at Hinsdale, we did that. We did that around a fire. I heard it was wonderful, yes. Introduce yourselves. Yeah, and, yeah, and like, yeah. like thanked the, the entities and the, and the spirits that remain, you know, assuming all the lore is real, doing all of that. And it's like, so we, we start off in the right headspace, but then we eventually, we, we, we like curve off the path always. Because you, you eventually start wanting to look for evidence, yes. right? So you start... There's you, the number one problem. Right. And, you, There's, and this is a new revolution in ghost hunting, I'm telling you. You go there expecting this evidence. Well, I mean, you said it best the other day when you were like, we asked them to perform tricks. Yes. Yes. And I really do not love that way of ghosting. Turn on the light. Do this. Right. Do that. Would would anybody... So first of all, someone's walking into your house. Second of all, if you're here, <laughs> make that flashlight. Fuck you. I'm right? here. Fuck you. You walked into my house. You're going to tell me what the hell to do? Right. And it does become performative. And I think that's a very, I don't think you're going to get any results from demanding a performative sort of thing. If you turn that EMF red. Right, right. 
and of course, like sometimes this stuff works or whatever is is trying to engage or or the the, the 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 I guess like the thought form that you've created in this instance is capable of engaging with these tools. And but, remotely, I think that energy right, can kick off. Right. Things. Yeah. Yeah. But but as a way of connecting earnestly and authentically with an entity or a house. Right. You're going to get a momentary fleet of evidence. You're going to get a <clears throat> EVP. You're going to get a little flash of light. You're not going to get a real experience of connecting. And again, I think you're absolutely right. We're on to something. We need to no, look absolutely. at our own minds and what we're thinking. I think we need to look at our own minds when we, when we go there. But I think we also need to re- like essentially review past investigations that we've done when we've had really excellent nights and captured like things or experienced just truly wondrous events where yeah. you're like, I don't know how to explain this. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, like what place of mind were you in and what were you doing and what were you saying and how were you engaging with whatever was around? And here's what we need to do. Start speaking to a house. Right. <laughs> It's an entirely different le- level of like j- just considering that the the building itself is what's causing yeah. that the building and the land and we just never really thought about that so entity based we've never investigated like that that's right I don't think it's necessarily like a new thought I think oh I agree, I agree. it's a new it's way a to new investigate way of investigating. I agree <clears throat> I agree wholeheartedly wholeheartedly. The mystery of the Hinsdale House remains. However, the experience has expanded our ideas of what a haunting may actually be. Could inanimate objects have a mind of their own? Could a house alone in the middle of nowhere bring your fears to life? Does our mind play a part in that? If you've enjoyed this series, leave us a review. To stay updated, make sure to subscribe. This show was created and produced by me, Shane McClelland, and Lori Gum. Thanks for listening. And until next time, folks, be weird. Stay curious. These are the Q-Files.